welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James, reading chapter 18 of Death and Other Origin Stories, Some Things Sacrificed. April 14th, 1974. He had left school quite abruptly two days after Sirius had, with his golden egg and eerie stoicism. McGonagall had caught him on the way to breakfast with James and Peter, all debating in hushed tones what it was Sirius couldn't tell them. Peter was convinced it must be something horrid like human sacrifice, and James scoffed at the notion that any family function could be so terrible. They were startled into silence when their professor's clipped tones cut through the entrance hall, calling Remus to her. She had bade him to pack a bag, giving him no information other than he was to meet his father in ten minutes at the Leaky Cauldron. Before he knew it, before he could even call to Peter and James to please watch after Freya, he was being ushered through the flue in her office and stumbling into his dad's studying grip. Lyle had apparated them to the little wood behind his grand's village, causing Remus' stomach to lurch and churn, and he was grateful that he had missed breakfast. They walked in mostly silence through the little village they had once lived in when he was a child, his feet treading the familiar route and his mind lost in apprehension about what lay ahead. His grand lived in a small stone building that looked much like all the other small stone buildings that lined the small cobbled lane. The houses were close together, some dotted with window baskets of spring flowers, others with windows shrouded in lacy curtains. Entering the house behind his dad, the darkness of the sitting room startled him, this was not the house he remembered from his childhood, filled with sunlight and neat little ceramic statues of gnomes and fairies, or the crystal bowls of candies and chocolates that once dotted the clean surfaces. Instead, the curtains were drawn, and a thick layer of dust coated the shelves and figurines, obscured by the darkness. The crystal bowls were empty. They were greeted by the same priest that had spoken at his mum's funeral, and his gaze flicked over Remus in a way that made his hands sweat and scars feel hot on his face. After perfunctory politeness, his dad turned to a nurse that was emerging from his grand's room, muttering in low tones, and Remus took his chance, slipping quietly through the kitchen and out into the back garden. He had hoped the sight of his grand's garden would lighten the heaviness in his heart, lift the tension from his skin a bit, but the sight of several pigeons lazily picking their way through the overgrown and weedy vegetable patch that had not yet been prepared for spring planting knocked the strength from his legs, and he sat with a heavy sigh. As a child, when he had lived just down the road from here, Remus would help his gran weed the beds, dig the soil over with his little trowel, and help with earnest fingers to push the seeds into the moist earth. His gran in her lacy white sun hat and grass-stained dungarees told him stories about the fairies that would help the seeds grow, about what each plant was used for and what recipes the fairies liked. After they planted their rows of squash and beans, cabbages and peas, he would be instructed by his gran to pick tiny bouquets of flowers, clover and dandelions, violas and mint, and she would tie them with bits of twine and arrange them delicately around a cup of honeyed milk nestled in the freshly turned soil as a gift for passing fairies. He would watch with big, serious eyes, nodding fervently along with the story, deeply immersed in the ritual. The snap and creak of the back door drew his mind away from wondering who would tend the vegetable patch now, and his dad sat beside him with a deep sigh, hat in hand. Gren never had proof fairies were real, 
Rima said, without really meaning to. But she believed in them anyway. Muggles are smarter than we give them credit for, his dad said gently. Do fairies really like honeyed milk? We haven't covered them yet in care of magical creatures, he said to his dad, head resting on his hands and his thumb rubbing the underside of his chin. His dad looked tired, sad, as he had for what felt like years now. Lyle nodded and cracked a weak smile. Your mom used to leave gifts out for the fairies too, you know. But once I told her they were real and what trouble they could be, she stopped. Sometimes, I wish I hadn't said anything. It took the magic away for her. Remus turned back to watch the pigeons, a sense of loss gnawing at him. It's time now, Remus, Lyle said softly with a heavy hand on his son's shoulder. The priest says we should be with her now. Taking a deep breath, he nodded and stood, taking a moment to dust off his faded gray trousers and followed his dad into the quiet of the house. April 15th, 1974. The spring sun wasn't yet strong enough to warm Remus through the bite of the chilled breeze that rustled new leaves on old branches, but he tipped his face up to it anyways, eyes closed and shoulders heavy, the trunk behind him solid and rough. Errant banks of nearly melted snow hedged the wooded path he had ambled down, icy water making the packed earth slick beneath his chucks as he cut through the birchwood behind his grand's house to sit beneath the boughs of familiar oaks and birches to collect his thoughts. His thumb rubbed the crisp parchment in his hands over the dried ink of a harried scrawl, smudged and unkempt, the writer frantic to get the words down. Claudia had snuck carefully into his grand's doily-covered kitchen, dotted with more of the same ceramic gnomes and fairies through an open window draped in lace, where Remus had been preparing tea. He had dropped the teaspoon with a clatter at the sight of her hopping covertly towards him across the formica counters, her bulging eyes fixed intently on a platter of rusks. Whispers of the unsuspecting muggle neighbors and mourners drifted through the house from the sitting room, conversing in low, somber tones, unawares that anything odd may be happening in the kitchen. He hurriedly untied the message and quickly picked up Claudia before anyone, let alone the presiding priest, could be any the wiser. Checking covertly for witnesses, he snuck out the back door and through the neglected garden and towards the woods. Remus loved the smell of spring and wet earth, of cold air and hopeful shoots of greenery making their way triumphantly skyward. And he breathed deeply as Claudia took off from his arm, off to find herself some breakfast. The change of scenery from the oppressive quiet of his grand's house was a welcome one. After sitting beside his grand's bed for hours, waiting in the odd liminal space between life and death, waiting for her to take her last breath, Remus had begun to feel trapped in a twilight zone of sad visitors and doting churchgoers. He'd had not a single moment since she had died in the early hours of the morning to process any of it. A snapping of a twig in the distance pricked his ears, and without thinking, he smelled the air, searching beyond the decomposition of the forest floor and the lily of the valleys. He smiled to himself, a doe, and although he couldn't see her, he could sense her, smell her just off to the left beyond the tangled mess of brambles. It felt odd to be back here, in the little wild wood he'd explored so much as a young child, before they had moved, before Graveback even. He turned his attention back to the parchment in his hands to reread the words James had sent to him. 
Moons, how are you? Why did you need to leave so suddenly? Min wouldn't say. Is everything all right? I'm worried about Sirius. I think he's in trouble at home. I mean, we know he is, but I think it's worse than we thought. I'm pretty sure someone put an unforgivable curse on him. Peter saw the welts on his arm when he tried to tell us what happened. He came back last night a right mess. We need to do something. Your brother in arms, James and Peter. Remus let his head thud back against the deeply grooved oak a little harder than he meant to. Thoughts of Sirius, of his gran, of the moon, of secrets and his friends, and his place amid it all swirled uncomfortably in his mind. As the little doe picked her way deeper into the trees, away from where Remus sat, he wondered how and when it all became so complicated, so convoluted and difficult. Remus and his parents had lived in a quaint stone house not a five-minute walk from his gran when he was little. Down a little lane in this small village, dotted with hydrangeas and elderberries. His fingers shredded leaf mulch as he listened carefully to the sounds of the forest, mulling over the memories of that time and wondering if Sirius had ever had fond recollections of his childhood home, if he ever had the space to run, free and wild like he did at Hogwarts. He wondered if there were woods near Sirius's home, like these, and if he ever wandered them hand in hand with his mom or his gran. He remembered the years spent here in these woods, in this town, with tenderness and an unrepentant ache for what could have been. What life he could have had, had Greyback not crawled into his window all those years ago, leaving his left hip disfigured and a fear of the celestial tides lodged deep in his gut. Even after the bite, they tried to make it work in this rural village, his childhood home, for nearly a year. Tried to maintain their life of normalcy in his mom's hometown with her book club on Tuesdays and brunch on Sundays, with his crushed school friends and big open spaces to run like any carefree child should. But the moons had taken their toll on his mom in those early days, his scars and bruises too numerous to hide, his transformations so violent and loud they broke through most of the silencing charms his dad had tried to layer over their home. In the end, they moved to Mariton on Marsh, cloistered beyond lonely poplars and weather-beaten apple trees, to a place sequestered from worried friends and neighbors, away from other children or prying eyes, to a life of isolation and relative safety. But most of all, since they left, he had missed the closeness of his gran, missed her fastidious knitting and sharp wit, her humor and unconditionality. He missed having a place to go when his parents were busy or distracted or uninterested, someone to sit quietly with and enjoy their company. His heart lurched again at the thought that Sirius may have never known that ache of love, of peaceful moments, of acceptance and belonging, that his dear friend spent his moments amid his family filled with fear and loneliness rather than with kindness. Remus's family certainly wasn't picture perfect. His mom had often been distracted and too lost in her own world to consider the needs of her child as often as she should have, and his dad clearly wasn't a model parent by any stretch of the imagination with his tremulous hands and bloodshot eyes. And although love wasn't the only thing a child needed to flourish, it certainly helped ease the burden of existence to know that you were loved, even adored at times. As flawed as his parents were, he could say, for what it was worth, that they loved him. He knew Sirius couldn't say the same, and that truth burnt bitter and thick in his throat as he pulled a pen out of his pocket and flipped the parchment over. To my brothers in arms, we knew something was up, didn't we? 
Are you sure it's an unforgivable? Seems unbearable to think a parent could put their kid in that situation. We'll have to be careful, as we don't want to put him in any more danger. But you're right. There must be some way we can help. Gran died yesterday. That's why Dad picked me up. She wanted me with her in the end. I may miss the first day back, so please take notes for me. I don't want to fall behind in transfiguration. Yours dutifully and faithfully, RJL. P.S. Don't let Sirius spend too much time alone in the woods. He gets a bit feral if left to his own devices. Remus thought about Sirius wandering alone amid the dense trees, with nothing but his haunted memories to keep him company. He worried his bottom lip, his thumb stroking the new, unhealed scar on the side of his jaw. The last moon had been one of the most brutal yet. After his experience of being wild and unencumbered in the great vastness of the Forbidden Forest, to then be put back into the confines of a dilapidated shack, the wolf had railed against him, biting and clawing, desperate and vicious. The next day he had awoken battered and bruised, his lips split and ribs aching. His exhaustion had reached new and debilitating heights. He tried to push all his warring thoughts aside. Sirius, the moon, his gran, a worried James, and his defeated wolf, all vying in his mind for a place to be heard, to be seen and placated. Pursing his lips, he whistled softly, the sound cutting through the melody of birds in the little wood, calling for Claudia, hoping she was still near enough to hear him. After a few tries with no lopsided owl in sight, he gave it up as a bad job and folded the note, stuffing it into his pocket for, to send later. Another twig snapped in the distance, but this time it made the hairs on the back of Remus's neck stand up. And as he lifted his head slightly into the breeze, focused and taut, he smelled them before he heard their voices. He didn't know how he knew, but the scent that flooded his senses told him that, without a doubt, he wasn't the only werewolf in these woods. There were three of them walking towards him, their voices getting louder and more clear. They were a jovial bunch, laughing and barking into the cold spring air. His mind reeled. He didn't know what to do. He was half terrified, half desperately intrigued. He'd never met others before, never really thought about what they must be like. As they came into view around the bend, they all fell silent as they saw Remus, sitting there beneath the great oak. Remus saw that they were older than he was, but not by much. Two of them looked school age yet. He saw as the oldest, with the wild red curls and a ghostly pale face in the middle, flared her nostrils curiously, watching him, her hands deep in the pockets of an oversized oilskin coat. The younger boy to her left, with gray eyes and dark skin, cracked a smile as he nudged her with his elbow. The third looked less friendly as he squared his shoulders and tried to step past the girl. Where's your pack? he asked, none too gently, as the girl gripped his arm. My what? Remus cocked his head, his mind starting to work. The boy with the gray eyes smiled even larger as the redhead shot Remus a quizzical look. Your pack, she repeated for him unless we're mistaken. Remus didn't answer right away. He felt stupid suddenly, for still sitting on the ground as the three of them looked down at him with their knowing smirks and clever eyes. You're not, he finally said, clamoring to his feet and brushing the leaf litter from his trousers. The girl stepped forward, breathing deeply and watching him closely. She prowled closer, her smile somewhere between predatory and playful, and Remus was unaccountably intrigued. 
She moved with ease in her body, the shadow of the wolf just under the surface. You're unwell, she said conclusively, as she halted a few paces before him. Excuse me? he asked, unable to hide his defensiveness, arms crossing over himself. The other two were now coming closer, sniffing the air curiously as they came, their brows furrowed. Of course he is, came the surly one, gesturing vaguely at him, his haughty tones and arched eyebrow at complete odds with his holy and worn denim pants. He doesn't have a pack, look at him. He must have a pack, he can't not have a pack, defended the boy with the gray eyes, a gold earring gleaming in his left ear. Remus didn't like how they were speaking about him as if he were a stray dog. What in Merlin's name are you lot talking about? Remus demanded, clenching his fists unintentionally. Recognition flashed in all of their eyes, and the redhead spoke, arms crossed. Ah, I see. The Ministry has you isolated, do they? What? Remus asked again, stupidly. I'm a muggle, she said bluntly. Lucian, here is a squib, she gestured, laying a hand on the shoulder of the boy with the ragged denim. And Damien is magical, but muggle-born. But you're Hogwarts age, Remus said confusedly to Damien. I never got my owl. Damien shrugged, not looking wholly fussed about it. Remus was sure they didn't miss the look of incredulity that contorted his face at the thought of someone never getting their acceptance letter. The ministry doesn't have either of us registered, the girl cut in before Remus could pry further. We keep a low profile and they don't bother us. It's the folks that come from magical families that seem to struggle the most, like Lucian here. They keep you from forming packs and doing what you're meant to do. And what are we meant to do? Remus asked, suddenly desperate for an answer, unaware that he'd been aching to know for years. She smiled and shrugged. Be a wolf. His shoulders dropped, the emptiness in his gut gnawing. But I can't. Not the way you're living now, you can't, snarled Lucian. They're keeping you chained up like a dog, they are. I can smell it. I bet you spent your last moon in a cage. Lucian, Damien said softly, placing a hand on his arm. Not everyone is as lucky as we are. I'm in school. I can't, Remus interjected feebly. Lucky? demanded Lucian, ignoring Remus. We had to fight for our pack. We still have to fight. Yes, Lucian, we know. Calm down, will you? The redhead said in exasperation before turning her attention back to Remus. She brushed her thick, curly hair off of her shoulders and looked him up and down, weighing her words. Kid, you're a wolf. You need a pack. You need to be out during the moons. Locking yourself up every month will only make things worse. I see those scars, how thin you are. You need a pack. I, Remus tried again, hating her scrutiny, feeling exposed and like he was somehow failing at the most basic level. He looked more carefully at them, noticing as he did how few scars they had, how healthy they looked, how radiant and self-assured despite their shabby clothes and he was filled to the brim with a deep-seated jealousy. The wolf in his chest growled a low, guttural sound. She took a step forward, her eyes going soft, and she reached out for his hand. Pulling the pen from his limp and yielding fingers, she turned his palm upward to write on his pale skin. What's your name? she asked, as the pen pressed into his soft palm. Remus. Remus Lupin, he offered, feeling suddenly very stupid about it. She raised her eyebrows and snorted a laugh. You're joking, right? Wolfie McWolf, really? How has everyone not figured it out? 
He shrugged, mouth dry. Well, it's nice to meet you, Remus. I'm Brina. She offered as she continued to move the pen across his skin. When she was done, she murmured a soft, there, releasing his hand and holding out the pen for him. Whenever you're ready, that's where we meet the day before the moon. You need a pack. You can't keep doing this to yourself. She gestured at the whole of him, and his cheeks burned with embarrassment as he pocketed the pen. Lucian had already turned away and began walking further down the path, clearly irritated with the exchange. Damien smiled brightly and waved genially with a see you around, Remus. And finally, Brina stopped surveying him with her knowing gaze and curious smirk as she followed her fellows down the path, her hands stuffed deep into the pockets of her oilskin coat. Remus stood there with his ears ringing and scars pulled tight over crawling skin for longer than he would ever admit to anyone. Beneath the boughs of ancient oaks and towering birch trees, he promised himself that one day, he and his pack, James and Sirius and Peter, would be healthy and cared for, safe and protected. One day. Back in his bed in Mariton on Marsh, his briefcase of books and sketch pads spilled out messily on the floor beside a pile of knitwear he hadn't bothered to fold. He lay curled on his side, his mom's crocheted afghan pulled tight around his shoulders. He smelled the musty disuse of his bedding, reminding him that this was no longer his home or where he felt safest or held. He missed his friends, missed the comfort of Sirius's antics, Peter's quiet presence, and James' perpetual enthusiasm. He even missed Lily and Marlene and their sharp wit and subtle humor, and wished desperately that he were there with them, rather than in bed in this room filled with the memories and thoughts of people he could no longer reach. Remus tried not to think of watching his grand slip into the quietness of death, of the softness of her features or the stillness in her body. He didn't want to think about the way all of the adults looked to him with sad eyes and all the consoling hands that had touched his shoulders, making him feel so observed, so unable to process his feelings or his grief. He had loved his gran and wished he could have spent more time with her before she died, wished that his last memories of her were with her in her garden, surrounded by the little gifts she left to the fae, rather than the night he had spent beside her as her breath rattled and her eyes glazed over in the way she couldn't respond to his presence anymore. Remus pressed his face into his pillow, his body tight and trembling, and full of jittery nerves and restlessness, not unlike the pull of the moon in the days before his transformation, and he let the tears fall. Fall for his gran, for Sirius, for the way he missed his friends, for the distance between himself and his father, for the yearning and desperation he felt to join the other werewolves in their wild revelry below the full moon. He cried for the overwhelming sensations that crashed over and through him at the thought of his place in the world and how he could possibly continue to move through life when it felt this intense all the time. Eventually, he fell into a fitful sleep, the gentle chorus of night birds and insects carrying him off into dreams where he could run free and unburdened. It felt surreal, almost, how Remus stepped through the flue at the leaky and was suddenly being chivied out of McGonagall's office and directly into a stream of students on their way to first period. In a matter of moments, he was in step with the others, who were shoving books and notes and stacks of toast into his arms as they made their way hastily to charms, as if Remus had never left. Later that day, after returning to the dorm, he called for Freya, searching under the beds and behind the long curtains by the windows, but she was nowhere to be found. 
Pete, where's Freya? Remus asked as he crouched down to look under the chest of drawers, his knees creaking. Dunno, he mumbled, digging through his trunk. She must have run off. Hairs don't belong in a dorm, do they? Remus frowned. Well, that's a shame, he said sincerely. I should have taken her with me. He sat heavily on his bed, suddenly so very sad that Freya had decided to leave them. It was probably for the best, Peter offered consolingly. She was meant for sacrifice anyway. Remus didn't miss the side-eyes serious shot Peter, nor the oddly confident conviction with which Peter spoke. Sirius was quieter than usual, but they didn't pry, didn't want to put him in any more danger than they suspected he was already in. It was strange to see him subdued again, like he had been in the days after his father had once visited, and the weeks following the Easter of the year before. He seemed blunted, laughed little, got up to hardly any mischief at all, sullen and quiet and prone to spending hours at a time, looking wistfully out the castle windows to the forest and the rolling mountains beyond. When Peter asked to borrow Sirius's silver knife and potions, which he dithered on about losing over Easter, Sirius handed it over simply, without fanfare, and did not seem to catch the suspicious look that James and Remus shared between furrowed brows. When James brought out the cloak at half-past eleven on an otherwise quiet Wednesday evening, Sirius shrugged and let the opportunity to explore the fifth floor and Filch's office slip on by. When Remus spilled dragon dung fertilizer all inside his shoes one morning in Herbology during a particularly haphazard repotting of a leaping toadstool, Sirius hardly laughed at all. Like the times before, however, this quiet melancholy didn't stay long. Sirius seemed to rebuild pieces of himself and his boisterous, contrary ways bit by bit, emboldened by the gentle encouragement and comfort of his friends, of routine, of a castle that seemed to draw out the brightest pieces of him. April turned to May, and with the warming of the grounds, so too did Sirius seem to come alive again, though this too seemed to wax and wane the closer his three friends came to reminding him of the many dark things Sirius carried. On top of all of their regular homework and responsibilities, they began taking turns scouring the library for resources on unforgivable curses, jotting down ideas and references, research and theories. James was even foolhardy enough to take his trusted cloak out for a few nights' stroll in the restricted section, nearly getting caught by a prowling filch twice, but managing to find a ghastly tome that proved quite insightful. Binder's Biddings by Bella Brown, fully illustrated with far more detail than anyone should ever want, not only explained exactly how to perform an unbreakable vow, but explained its structure in such a way that made James believe it was, in fact, possible to break. If only they understood half of what the book was talking about. While Remus, of course, worried for his friend, he was nevertheless grateful to have something wholly distracting and consuming, and thought with chagrin that he should be getting class credit for all of the ancient runes and arithmancy he was having to learn for this endeavor. During their now free period, which was once occupied by elinquency, they all managed to sequester themselves on shared breaks to a back corner of the library, sprawled out on threadbare woven rugs, surrounded by scattered books and sheets of parchment. It was during one of these sessions that Remus saw for himself the effects of the curse placed on his friend. After a leading question or two that would take them a hair too close to the truth, trying to divine which direction to take their research, the welts on Sirius' wrists would blaze hot and red like a raised scratch of someone having dragged their sharpened nails down his soft skin. The second time it happened, Sirius dashed down an aisle to puke in a pot plant, 
and after that they stopped doing their research when he was around. Instead, they took it in turns and met every few nights after Sirius had fallen asleep to discuss a plan of action. But the problem was, after weeks and weeks of reading, researching, and trying to ask not-so-innocent questions about semi-legal transfiguration magic of McGonagall during class, they came to the crushing realization that they were only 14, in their third year of their magical education. This was complicated, ancient magic that was woven into Sirius's very bones and viscera, and they had honestly no idea how in Merlin's name they were going to help him. Okay, but look, mates, James was saying, his fingers pinching the bridge of his nose and scrunching his eyes hard under his glasses. We think we've narrowed it down at least to these options, right? Yes. No, Remus and Peter chorused. Yes, Remus, remember? It's either the veracity vows or the malignant maledictions. No, Pete, Remus shook his head, pulling out a sheet of parchment covered in diagrams and notes. We couldn't rule out the obedience oaths because we don't know if he was a single recipient or if there are others. We don't know if Regulus was there or some cousins or whatever, you know? Bollocks, Peter muttered, dropping his head into his open book. I hate this. We at least know that all of the unbreakable vows have the same basic spell matrix. It's just these caveats and consequences that are slightly different, James offered, trying to sound consoling, but missing the mark. Remus snorted. Consequences? They all kill you if you break them. The difference is basically moot. The only surefire way to make sure Sirius doesn't die is to wait for the caster to die. Ugh, we can't wait that long, Peter groused. This isn't fair. They sat in silence a moment, and Remus picked up the soft tread of bare feet on the stone steps to the dormitory. Before long, Sirius appeared in the doorway, rubbing sleep from his eyes, the fire illuminating a weird sister's t-shirt he had nicked from James under his lopsidedly tied silk robe. "'What are you lot doing, having a seance without me?' Sirius asked, shuffling towards them, his hair skew in a lopsided bun. "'We can't decide what demon to summon. Perhaps you have a suggestion for us,' James jested. Sirius snorted as Peter began collecting their parchment and stacks of notes for the night." Oh, Sirius said when he saw the book they were using as a reference. Mates, you don't have to keep doing this. I'll be fine. If I want to spend my evenings researching obscure forms of diabolical magic black, I don't need your blessings to do it, thank you very much. James retorted with an air of imagined indignation, flourishing a bit of parchment as he did so. Sirius seemed like he wanted to argue, to be irritated that they were focusing so much energy on him and the things he could do nothing about but instead he sighed and plopped himself resignedly into an empty seat besides Peter. Go on, then. As I was saying, James began, pompously as Sirius chucked a wadded-up piece of parchment at him, we just need to cross-reference the foundational frameworks of these styles of binding spells building and work our way backwards from there. Remus, scanning a page of Binder's bidding, was too distracted to pay much attention to James's dramatics recounts. The illustration of what a binding spell did to one's body and magic was absolutely terrifying. It wove its way into the very fiber of one's being and anchored itself into the fluctuating concept of truth. The magic was sentient, evolving, and could sense the interplay between the caster's intent of the binding and the recipient's understanding of the truth. There were even illustrations of poorly cast and breakable vows, where one's understanding of objective and subjective truth caused adverse reactions and complications of the spell. Bodies contorted in pain, writhing on the ground, and covered in welts. 
This magic was old and deep and complicated, and Remus couldn't understand who would do this to anyone, let alone a child. He was pulled from his spiraling thoughts by James and Sirius, bounding suddenly away from the table, trying to quietly wrestle their way up the stairs. Sirius bracing himself on the doorway, and James trying to lift him over his shoulder. He looked over at Peter with a raised eyebrow, who said simply with a shrug, They're getting the cloak. Remus nodded and sighed deeply, finally closing the dark leather tome and its worrying contents. He stood and stretched and mentally prepared himself for an evening of getting up to no good. June 20th, 1974. As the weeks wore on, barreling quickly towards the end of their third year at Hogwarts, Sirius, in his charismatic and distracting ways, had convinced them to put a hold on researching ways to break his unbreakable vow, and rather focus their clever skills and keen minds to something that seemed much less depressing and much more rewarding in the ways of mischief-making and nonsense. The four of them had begun to compile a rough index for all of the hidden tunnels and secret recesses of the castle that they had discovered over their three years of getting up to no good. After nearly getting caught out after dark again and stumbling into a new corridor on the third floor. They were heckled by a portrait of three fair maidens, tending to a large cauldron over a fire, one of them threatening to call Filch, brandishing her wooden spoon, and another telling them which rooms in the passage were unlocked with a wink and a smile. Just imagine how many secrets this place has, James had whispered excitedly, climbing back up to the dorms at near 3 a.m. We need to figure out as many as we can before we leave. They stayed up all night until the sun rose, all huddled onto Sirius's bed, writing lists and drawing diagrams, consumed with the idea of uncovering the castle's secrets. They only stopped when they heard the sounds of students heading towards breakfast, and blearily they dressed and raced out the door, eager to fuel up on strong tea and crispy bacon to get them through the day. And over the weeks, the wall of their dorm had become more and more occluded with spelled bits of parchment, poorly drawn diagrams of tunnels and niches and walls, brass thumbtacks holding up string between odd names for entrances they had found, and portraits of information. James had managed to get a 400-year-old copy of what one might consider schematics for the castle, though it seemed more a subjective interpretation rather than an actual layout, not to mention things seemed to move to a different place every time they tried to reference it. Remus was dashing up the steps to the dorm, sidestepping the hopeful call of Marlene who beckoned him to join her for a final game of exploding snap before the end of term, leaving Lily glowering after him with a disapproving glare when he shouted, Sorry Marlene, catch you later. He opened the door just enough to slip inside, making sure no one was about in the hall, and turned to see Peter balancing precariously on a stool as he tried to scribble a final dictation on an errant note beside a drawing of a statue of a one-eyed witch. Sirius was on the other end of their sprawling mess of parchment, trying to charm a poor depiction of the Whomping Willow to dance about. James looked up excitedly from his bed where he was carefully drawing all of the rooms of the first floor. Did you get it? Yeah, Remus smiled as he extricated a small, old, rather tatty fabric-bound book from under his robes. I nicked it from behind Madame Pince's desk after setting off a dung bomb in the dark creature section. It accidentally rolled under Davy's desk. He tossed magical map-making and divinatory delineation by Oswald Schumer to James, who caught it gleefully. Excellent. Don't make me regret stealing that, Remus warned, feeling a slight twist of unease about taking a school book without permission. 
Oh, stop worrying so much. You'll never know it was gone, Sirius chastised, as he sat hunched over his drawing of the whomping willow, the branches beginning to sway. How on earth are we going to take this down for the summer without messing up the whole thing, Peter asked, climbing down from his stool and surveying the wall with mounting concern, hands on his hips and face sweaty. Well, since we can't use magic over the summer, we'll have to pay attention to the coding system. Each bit of parchment has a number, and this, he produced a smaller drawing of the wall of notes with an accompanying ledger, will tell us where each piece goes. So, you're taking it home first, right, James? Remus clarified. Yes, and every week we'll pass it along to the next person in line, and we'll all add to it over the summer so we're ready to make it into a proper map by the start of term. As I said before, you might have to skip me, Remus said, not looking at any of them as he continued to diligently charm images on the parchment. I don't know if I'll have the time. Okay, then. We'll save you for last, and you can write to me to let me know. Peter, you're next. Don't lose anything. Then Remus, then Sirius. Do we all know our duties? They spent several hours dividing duties related to their monstrous map project before they left together for the leaving feast, where the great hall was decorated in the colors of Ravenclaw. Sirius seemed to have single-handedly lost Gryffindor enough points to put them in third place, despite the victory of their second Quidditch Cup in two years. It was good fun either way, until halfway through dinner when Marlene was asking everyone their plans for summer holiday, casually bumping her leg against Remus's, making him blush and knock several things over. Sirius sank into a quiet glower when asked about his summer. The usual, I suppose, he muttered frostily, eyes trained on his rare filet and roast potatoes, not touching any of it. His mood continued to fester as dinner wore on, and Remus watched him carefully, as did James. Peter was too busy trying to engage Marlene in a discussion about trolls to notice. When the feast ended and the tables dispersed, Sirius seemed to melt into the crowd that and wasn't found in the common room or dorm when they returned to finish packing. With mild consternation, the three of them carefully took the map off the wall and stacked the pieces with the ledger, placing it in a charmed envelope. James tucked it into his trunk with care before the three of them decided they should get to bed. Just as Remus was slipping into a comfortable sleep, he heard the latch and creak of the door and Sirius's soft steps on the stone floor, followed quickly by a flourish of bedding. James quietly marched over to Sirius's four-poster, and Remus could hear them climbing in under the covers and closing the hangings. Before one of them thought to put up a silencing charm, he could hear James whispering, You don't have to go back, Sirius. I told you. Come home with me. I wrote to Mom and Dad, and they said you're welcome all summer. You don't have to go back there. I can't leave Regulus there alone. I can't leave him, James. The, he sounded hollow and defeated, and James took a deep breath before casting a silencing charm, and quiet fell in the room except for the sounds of Peter's snores. I feel like you should have reread the chapter before we did this. Yeah, well, you were supposed to wait for me to read so I could listen while you read, and you just, like, disappeared and read it without me. I went off to my cave and recorded it. (laughs) Okay, well, I kind of remember what happened. Why don't you give a synopsis of the chapter, then? Tell me what you said. I asked you what was this chapter like writing it, and how did you feel about it, and what did you say? 
it felt like I was... It's not that I dislike this chapter. Mm. I feel like it's an important stepping point, but that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like a stepping point, like, mm. in terms of plot. Like, I felt like I was just writing in some, like, filler information that we need for later. And it's the shortest chapter you've ever written. Yeah. So I think technically the chapter is good. There were none mm. of those moments where I had that thing where mm. I was like, what are you yeah. doing with the writing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is it... <laughs> Like nails on a chalkboard yeah, to yeah. read. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I mean, it flowed nicely. It's a, an, a nice little chapter. Mm. Um, and I think the the topics... What is that noise? Oh, it might be the um, inverter. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, some of the topics that you covered, actually, you could have delved really deep into. Yeah. And are usually topics that I feel like you would explore mm-hmm. happily... And with, like, a lot of vigor. Like, Mm. why didn't you do that, do you think? I felt like it wasn't the right time to go into it. Like, specifically with his grandma dying, Mm -hmm. I felt like with how old he is and, like, how little capacity he has to process, like, really intense things at this point in time, I feel like he was in so much, like, shock and disconnect about the entire experience that he's not going to actually process it for, like, several months. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting how you wrote that, but you actually wrote more about him worrying about Sirius. Yeah. Yeah, like, he's putting all of his, like, emotional feelings into his friends. Yeah, which was mm. really interesting, and I also think kind of realistic mm. uh, in a certain, to a certain extent. I, I, I Definitely, that's how I coped with stuff when I was younger. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I mean... Mm. 14. I don't want to deal with my own nonsense. What are you doing? 14 is a really difficult age to, like, even mm. consider starting contemplating about, like, what is life and mm-hmm. death and, like, the idea of, like, you know, it give, gives the hint that, like, totally. this muggle family is Christian, like, they believe mm. in heaven and the afterlife, most mm. likely. Yeah. And he doesn't really even spend any time thinking about yeah. the concept of eternity. Yeah, he just knows that the priest makes him uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's kind of interesting because, like, in... In the Hogwarts universe, mm. we know ghosts exist. Mm. And there's a concept of eternity in the afterlife. Mm. Um, but, like, obviously they're not at a place yet where they're really exploring it. Yeah, totally. Um, the other scene that was really, really interesting that I thought you could have expounded on so much more mm. is the werewolves he runs into. Yeah. Why did you write that, that part in? I really want him to start getting exposure to, like, the wider werewolf culture because his entire lens of, like, this concept of werewolves, A, comes from his dad in the ministry and Greyback, which I feel like are two very specific lenses to view, like, this condition that he has, you know. Um, and he's never really been exposed to other werewolves. He's never met other people who've experienced maybe such a traumatic like event that he has um, in that same sense. Mm. And like he doesn't have a community. Mm. I like how also you wrote that as sort of like his interpretation of it is that like his pack is his friends. Yeah. Um, and that like he sort of like desperately wants them to have that. Yeah good healthy space mm-hmm. and I thought it was kind of interesting because like then begs the question like are they capable of being a good pack for him yeah. because they're not because they're not werewolves yeah what do you think about that I think that's something we're gonna end up exploring a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you it, it's a great question that probably 
you know, lots of people mm. have been faced with, like, you know, your friends can be your friends and they can, they can be mm. there for you and they can try their best to understand, but, like, at some point do you need a community of individuals who are experiencing the same thing? Totally. So some people would say yes and some people would say no. Yeah, I think it depends on the person. What would you say? I feel like at this point in Remus's life, he just wants somebody that he can relate with. What would you say in your own life? When I was younger, I probably would have... I did gravitate towards other people who had similar experiences. Because it felt like, especially when you go through really traumatic stuff at a young age, and then you spend time with people who've had like very chill childhoods, it can be really hard to relate sometimes. So I tended to gravitate towards other people <laughs> who had the dead look in their eyes. <laughs> do you think you've gravitated towards them? Like, do you think you, you could have easily had a friend group that was maybe not so, like, steeped in the reality? Or do you think you really needed that? <sighs> I don't know. I'm not really sure. Mm. Because those were usually the people I formed, like, the the deeper connections with. Because, like, I had friends who had normal childhoods, like, obviously. Like, mm. I had a smattering of friends. Did you? Across the spectrum. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, especially when you're that young and you have minimal life experience, um, it can be really hard to talk about or, like, relate to, like, certain topics if you have friends who have, like, even less limited experience, you know? Do you think it would have been different if you had been in therapy from a young age? Yeah, probably. Because I was thinking about it, it's, like, therapy is sort of that place where you need to, like, digest and process mm -hmm. all of these things. And, yeah. like, you know, even have to someone normalize things totally. for you and be, like, what you're experiencing is normal. And usually a therapist fills that role pretty mm -hmm. well. And then you don't necessarily feel like you need to have someone to, mm. like, relate to and totally. to feel normal with and mm. all of those things. So it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure it's different for everybody. Yeah, and, and definitely. Probably depending anyone you ask, they're going to have different insight into mm. why, you know, they, they preferred certain things sure. or their, you know... Yeah, their I, understanding. I think for different. me it was more of a coping strategy than anything. Like, I don't think a lot of those relationships, they didn't survive into adulthood because they weren't inherently, like, healthy. Yeah. I think we just gravitated towards each other because we were, like, same. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Actually, yeah, I could really see that. Mm. Um, it's sort of interesting now, like, sort of looking back on them mm. and being like, you know... Because we've talked about this before, like, your experience of friendships mm. in general was... I think not healthy in general. Yeah, like, I don't think so. Over and above. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I had really solid friendships. Mm -hmm. And I had really solid friendships also with people who didn't experience anything that I mm. was dealing with. Yeah. And who didn't relate to me on that level at all. Totally. And those friendships mostly were like a place for me to just pretend to be normal. Mm -hmm. And like to live a normal life. Too, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Or to, like, live through a lens that, that mm. felt, like, stable and normal. Yeah. And I don't think I gravitated towards anyone who was dealing with similar things. Because I think, especially as young people, like you said, they've become very unhealthy. Because mm. you don't know how to appropriately support someone. Totally. Because you're so busy being like, I'm also traumatized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and that, that to me doesn't really, like... Yeah. It didn't... It never... Like, felt good for you? 
Yeah, I feel like I always ended up be, being the person like listening and supporting, yeah. and then yeah. it's just exhausting. Yeah. And it's like, what is this? This isn't a friendship because I had other really good friendship yeah. models, mm. um, where you were just like, I'm basically this person's therapist, yeah, and I'm like twelve. I you, yeah. don't do this to me. Yeah, that was most of my friendships. <laughs> I feel like you still do that. I still do that to a huge extent. Yeah, I th- I think you still have adults in your life who treat you like a therapist, and I've said this so many times, mm. and I think it's true though. It it is true, yeah. and I think the reason, one of the reasons, like, not that it bothers me, like, you can't have those friendships, mm. but I look at it and I think that's inherently unhealthy. Mm. That's not a true friend to you. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. Not that I want to discourage you from having friends. Obviously, you should have friends. <laughs> but I feel like the kind of people mm. who, like, gravitate towards you yeah. as friends do a lot of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I find that, I mean, that's the kind of, like, interactions that I have just, like, out in the world. Like, my daily interpersonal yeah. reactions with strangers, even. Like, I'm the kind of person who a complete stranger will walk up to and tell their entire fucking life story to while I'm in line at the grocery store. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. What? <laughs> I don't know you. And so <laughs> I don't know how you want me to help with that. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I, I feel like my friendships are, like, just, like, a more complex version of that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, which to me, I find annoying just because, like, mm. I feel like you deserve better friends. Mm. Or, like, you deserve friends who don't use you as a therapist because they just don't want to pay for a therapist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's crap. Yeah, definitely. Friendships should be bi-directional. Like, mm. there should be... A good give and take. Yeah, and, like, a good sense of boundaries mm. and a good sense of, like, caring about the person totally. outside of your needs. Mm. And I don't think you... Like, there's a couple people in particular. Yeah. I feel like you just let them do that. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> this is my default setting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I and mean, I guess it's not that... I, I wonder sometimes if part of the problem is is because I don't um, I don't really open up to a lot of people. Like, mm. it takes, like, a very long time for me to get to a point to talk about, like, real stuff on my own end. But even if you opened up to some of these people, I don't think they would appropriately support you anyway. And that's yeah. probably why you don't open yeah, up yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, this is not safe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. Totally. And you also go to a therapist and actually just yeah. talk about those things with your therapist. Yeah, totally. Which is like the appropriate thing. And also on a podcast. Yeah. Also <laughs> the appropriate thing. <laughs> Speaking of things that you talk to your therapist and also oh my the podcast God, about. Okay. Why? First, let's give some background okay. about why you ran away and avoided recording this with me mm-hmm. just now. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about well, it? I said I was going and then you ignored me and I went. <laughs> That sounds like an excuse. Give the people the details. <laughs> I said I was going to go record and then I... No, no, no. But why, why were you so nervous to record this discussion? Um, because you're going to drag me. I'm not going to drag you. Mm. First and foremost, I have no reason to drag uh-huh. you. Because the things that I've been ripping on mm. you about mm-hmm. are totally normal processes that like adults go through. And I just enjoy oh the flailing. Yeah, I and I also just enjoy like pointing it out to yeah. you. But that's not. I would never say that that's like an appropriate way to think about like how people grow and change mm-hmm. because like everyone as they exist, like your identity, it is fluid and mm-hmm. changes over time, and experiences and learning, all of that integrates into a person and changes over time. Like you have new experiences every day. You don't expect to remain static your Mm. whole life. So background, I was giving you shit because Mm -hmm. it was, was it the last? No, it was a few discussions ago. 
Was it my last chapter? I don't think so. I think it was the, the chapter before even before that. that. Okay. There's, there's a discussion we had because you wrote it over Christmas. Yeah. Okay. You wrote a chapter. You came to me and you were like, I'm going to write about Remus having a sexuality crisis. Mm. And I was like, why do you feel about doing that right now out of the blue, even though we didn't talk about it and it's not really like in the storyline do you want to tell me something? And you were like, no, no, no. I just feel like it's important for his character. And I was like, I don't know where you're getting this, but I, I'm not going to tell you what to write in your chapter because we've always just sort of like, you know, our chapters uh-huh. are our own uh-huh. uh, place where we like want to, we want to write about something, we write about it. And you were like, yeah, 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 no, no, no. It's just about Remus and just about what he's going through. And in the discussion, I asked you repeatedly. Yeah. Why did you write this? And you're like, no, no, totally. I don't know. Nothing to do with me. There's like some great clips yeah. I could be playing right yeah, now, but that I'm not you've going been sending to. to me over the last month. <laughs> Just, I feel like it's important for you to be self-aware, self-aware. I oscillate between like cripplingly self-aware and like blindingly unself-aware. <laughs> Like, there's just, no middle ground. And I'm on WhatsApp, like, yeah. just reminding you. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little reminder. Yeah. <laughs> well, so in that discussion, mm-hmm. you also had this moment, mm-hmm. this very long moment, where you were very clear about mm-hmm. how you never had a sexuality crisis. Mm-hmm. It was very clear to, from you, for you from a young age. Like, you were bi, you liked women and men. Things were good, mm-hmm. golden, well-supported, beautifully clear. Mm-hmm. And then, like... A week later, mm-hmm. you were like, I was wrong and I lied about all of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never had a sexuality crisis because it's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, as you're writing about yeah. Remus having a yeah. sexuality crisis, yeah. it just snowballed. Yeah, it's snowballing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I feel like this has been like a slow discussion that has been happening like in therapy yeah. and stuff too for you. Yeah. So it's like almost like in the background has been building. Yeah. So do you want to tell the people more about like how writing about it and like mm. all of that culminated yeah. and like became a real life sexuality crisis? Yeah. It was like, cause I, I literally couldn't tell you in the moment why I felt the need to write it. It was one of those things where I was like, this feels right for some reason. <laughs> and I'm in the background. Like, I don't think it's related to your chapter, but Okay. Why are you doing this? Even my other partner was like, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. All of us in the background are like, so you're going through something, huh? And you're like, no, I've never gone through something a day in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean through something? There's nothing to go through. (laughs) Bye. Oh my God. That was you. That was me. Yeah. 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 And then? Yeah. And then it all started because my other partner was like, are you sure you're not just gay? (laughs) And I was like, it was one of those things where it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's just been a spiral ever since. It's been like a solid month of that. Okay. <laughs> Do you think, so interestingly, mm. I, you told me that mm. and I was like, okay, it doesn't mm. really. Yeah. So. <laughs> like, and. I've known you like women forever. Yeah. <laughs> How does this change anything? Like, <laughs> this is exactly the same as it was yesterday. Like, why are you sweating so much? 
Not I'm to be dismissive. Still, I'm but still like, sweating. I, I, yeah, and like not to be dismissive, but like in my mind, yeah. I was like, yeah, you've always liked women. <laughs> women are great. I don't. What? So what? <laughs> do you want to explain why it was such a big deal to you? I think the biggest thing is like because my other partner is a dude, mm-hmm. and like that, I would, like just trying to like contemplate how that affects like our dynamic or like what we're gonna do like into the future. Mm-hmm. It's just like. Oh, that is. She's thinking about it. It's like very like the snowball gets large kind of mm, a thing, um, yeah. which I think is yeah. fair. I mean, you guys have such a close like friendship and mm. bond, and you've oh, I mean, you've been friends long before yeah. you got married, and mm. were even you know romantically yeah. involved. And I feel like you know this idea that like if your relationship changes that like that might change mm. is really intimidating especially when it's someone who's been in your life for mm. so long i think that's it like we're we're very like we feel very secure with each other like of as, course yeah. like our friendship and i think that both of us are a little freaked out about something like shifting like mm. too dramatically yeah which i feel like it totally could like that's obviously like a possibility yeah and my therapist like so bluntly was just like yeah well you know one of them could, one of your partners could die then what and i was like that's not helping. <laughs> it's a little brutal. I know, right? it was very brutal. Like she was like fed up with my spiraling. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah. yeah. I think so it's so um realistic though. Mm. I think to like have to step back and think about like, you know, how do I feel like about the relationships mm. that I have? How yeah. do I how do I feel like about who I am now versus who I am, mm. you know, five years ago, yeah. you know, and when I, when these sort of like foundations were built, do I mm. need the same things? Do yeah. I want the same things? Totally. You know, and I think, so we've been raised, certainly you and I mm. have, and most people around the world have been raised with this idea of like marriage is forever. Yeah, That totally. like your one partner is the one mm. partner you have forever and... I think we particularly have challenged that notion mm. repeatedly. Yeah. And absolutely. like extensively. Mm. And I think this is another step in that sort of process. Totally. But it's still really intimidating to do. And mm. I think one, I wanted to say it's very normal to do, but it's also very normal to be super anxious about it mm. and to be like, you know, so my response of being like, and so what was sort of like <laughs> I, I sort of, like, didn't think about how, you if you had wanted things to change, yeah. like how you would feel about things yeah. changing. Because, like, mm. you also have an open relationship with them. Mm. You could date other women. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like it immediately meant, like, you could yeah, do yeah, with totally. them. Yeah. So, like, on the surface, it felt like nothing had to change. But, like, after, like, thinking about it for so long, especially, mm. like, my therapist making me talk about it. <laughs> it's just like, oh, <laughs> things could shift. <laughs> So why would change like that be so terrifying to you? Um, I think some of it is like what I talked about with my therapist. We were saying that like people who grow up in like profound trauma, if it, you know, if we're lucky enough to get to a place where we really love our life mm. and like are really happy with the way things are, we're like terrified of rocking the boat, mm-hmm. like to change it in a fundamental way because like if it's so good now, yeah. like the rug could be pulled up from underneath you. So like how do you change it? <laughs> how did, how did yeah. she say? What was um, her advice? Well, she was just like weighing the pros and cons. Like, 
you can't, like you said, you can't say static, mm. you know? So like staying static and like trying to like cling to things, staying the way they are is like a really unhealthy way of like coping. Yeah. Especially you know? if they're not what you want. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and she was just like, you have to like, you know, make the decision to eventually like step into that. I also think it's really important for people, especially in that situation mm. to take a step back, to realize that they can have confidence in themselves. Totally. Like they are very capable of dealing mm. with things and that they will find happiness again mm-hmm. as they have found happiness already. Yeah. Like, they are capable of doing that. Yeah. It, it's not like if you have one thing, you have mm. to have that one thing. Totally. Um, and that any change means back to chaos and yeah, horror, yeah, you know? Totally. Like, you are actually very capable. Mm. You will be okay. Mm. I think that's probably a really important mm. takeaway from situations yeah, I think like so. that. Definitely. And it's like the, like you can, you can know that logically, but like in your body, you're mm. still like really resistant of course, to like the change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I think what probably helps in your situation also is like both of us are very open to talking mm. about these sorts of things. Yeah. I can imagine it's extremely stressful yeah. as your partner's maybe not open to totally. talking about things or they get totally. defensive or scared totally. or they have a similar response. Yeah. Yeah. It could be really difficult. Yeah. I feel like I'm actually in a super lucky situation cause I can just like talk about it mm. very openly and no one's going to take my experience personally. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I think really surprised me when you told me that is that like, you had a lot of resistance to this idea that you were gay. Mm. Like, even to the point of saying that, like, maybe it was just internalized homophobia, mm. which, like, I didn't understand at all. Also, because yeah. you have always liked women. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, do you want to, like, tell me more about, like, what that means? I feel like that's still being unpacked to, like, a huge degree. <laughs> but, like, um, what kind of thoughts do you have when you say something like that? Just, you know, in case people are thinking like me, like, yeah. how is that possible, like... If you've always liked women, why would it be such a change to yeah, like, yeah, totally. only like women? I think um, I've been able to like, like I've always been really comfortable until recently with like the bisexual label mm-hmm. and like fitting into that. And I think with my relationship with my dude partner, it's been super hard or super easy to coast under the radar. Mm. Like super easy. I don't have to explain anything to anyone. I don't mm. have to like deal with nosy family if I don't want to like I can legit just be like cruising yeah nobody's gonna question my sexuality if I date someone who looks like the opposite totally yeah Yeah. like and that is just like it's so safe right it's so safe it's so comfortable yeah um especially like coming from a family like my my dad is just your dad and your stepmom and my stepmom are just the worst yeah I mean I was gonna ask about that because in my head I thought, like, so what? You like women. But, like, I feel like in your background, particularly, mm. even the idea of being a lesbian or being gay was something that was ridiculed so much. So hard. Like, being bi was safe. Yeah. And normal Totally safe. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. It was fine. Yeah. Like you said, easy to hide yeah. under the radar. But your family was incredibly cruel. Yeah. Because, like, you know, you you kind of fit a lot of the, like, stereotypes mm. of a lesbian growing mm. up. Like, no offense, but you yeah, did. I did. <laughs> yeah. Still do. <laughs> Which is fine. Like, that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. your family was incredibly cruel about totally. it. Totally, yeah. And I think I, I took a long time to, like, remember that. Mm. that you know, because they're not so present in our lives Yeah, now. yeah. Like, I don't really deal with them now. But I think I have a lot of internalized, like, shame from dealing with them. Totally. Because, I mean, my, my dad started calling me a dyke when I was, like, 12. Yeah. Like, that 
shit. And I like I would always be like, whatever, I don't care. But I I think yeah. as a twelve year old, like that shit gets in there. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also like you know, just this is a thing that people make fun of. Totally. You know, mm-hmm. this is a thing that's that's you know something bad about me. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. I should be like you know, fighting against or that totally. you have been fighting against since <clears throat> yeah. you were 12. Totally. Like, that's a long time to carry mm-hmm. that around. Yeah. And I think it just, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast mm-hmm. are obviously older yeah. and some of them are parents. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is a really good moment to mm-hmm. think about how you talk, even in a joking way. Yeah. Because especially I, my, my parents would have said it, they were just joking, right? No, totally. They would have been like, we were just joking. We don't care if you're gay. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, he would have said it was entirely in jest, but like, mm. that does not feel good. No. <laughs> and, and it doesn't feel good for so long that mm-hmm. like literally over half of your life later, mm-hmm. you're like, like wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, and it's Hold still ca- <laughs> causing like internal feelings of like shame and mm-hmm. feelings that are like so harmful and ugly and mm-hmm. like, yeah, just, yeah. just really not something you'd ever want to give a person totally. for like, the rest of their life. Yeah. Like, no, thank you. I would like to return this. Yeah. Where's the slip? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I, I feel like it took me a while to, like, think about what you meant mm. by all these things. Because to me, again, it just felt mm. like, duh. Yeah. That was exactly, <laughs> like, other partner's reaction. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, we all know. <laughs> it like, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you so nervous? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, God, some of this new trauma. <laughs> and I think that also goes to sh- to show that, like, you know, I never had someone who made mm. fun of me for stuff like that. Yeah. It was never on my radar. And mm. then, you know, eventually, like, realizing that I would date whoever I actually liked, mm. it never, ever had a, I had a moment yeah. of, like, I should feel bad about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's specifically related to how people talk to you as a yeah, young person. totally. And how horrible that can be. Yeah. And, <clears throat> I mean, I had this, like fascinating realization also like one of my really good friends like childhood friends um was gay and her and I were super close Mm -hmm. and if it weren't for my parents her and I probably would have dated Mm -hmm. like from like early early on like Mm -hmm. she probably would have been like one of my high school sweethearts kind of a thing yeah and my my dad was like so keen for us to date but the way he talked about it and the, it was just the sort of creepy and the jokes that he made were like so fucking uncomfortable that I like put up a million fucking walls. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's a normal reaction. And I was like, that. nope. Yeah. <laughs> Can't deal with that. Can't fucking deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta go. Yeah. 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 So people listening who are maybe older who have children, like think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about the way that you talk yeah. to your kids. Even if you think like you're trying to normalize it by making jokes about it, like be really yeah. fucking careful. Or make what, light of it. Yeah. yeah. Be really careful about how you actually speak about it. It might not age well. <laughs> yeah. Well, mm-hmm. or, you know, as a young person, it would have changed mm-hmm. your life totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have dated. How long did you date them? Like eight years? Yeah. You dated someone for eight years who was... Not a good match for you. No, no, it was a horrible relationship. Yeah, it was. Do you think you did that specifically for that idea of safety also? Yeah, like 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. He was a a very safe option. And it was like, I I remember after him and I broke up, I was like, I'm only dating women after this. Mm. And I remember saying that like a million times. Yeah. And then you... And then I didn't. 
You just happen to date <laughs> like a very effeminate dude. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> we're getting somewhere. <laughs> you were like, this is still safe in all the ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're getting closer to the end goal. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you think that's going to change? Like this realization is going to change things for you going forward in like the next year. Honestly, I have no fucking clue. Do you think it will change anything? Maybe not this year. <laughs> Maybe years ahead. Yeah. 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 I think I think I'm still at the point where I'm like like we were joking saying I mean my therapist saying that like I buried it in a pit in the yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know the pit's there, but I'm going to keep walking around it for a while. <laughs> I'm just not going to deal with a giant hole in the yard yet. Yeah. And that's yeah. also fine. Yeah. Like I think maybe at the first moment of realization, it was mm. like, what do I do now? Yeah, but totally. you don't actually need to do yeah. anything. You need to just be comfortable first doing yeah, something. Totally. With the idea of doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Step one. Yeah. <laughs> don't break out into cold sweats when you think about it. That's you're, step one. You're still not there. No, I'm not there. <laughs> Might be a while. <laughs> so, the, uh, yeah. So, that, that was one thing mm. that I thought was super interesting. Especially for me, because... Like, we talk about this a lot, but, like, your processing of things Mm. and my processing of things is so incredibly different that sometimes the things you do just, like, blindside me. And I'm like, what? I asked you about that, and you said no. (laughs) And I'm like, I didn't know. Yeah, so it's just funny to sort of like yeah. really get more insight into what mm. it's like to be a different person. Yeah. Like, what would I would what would I be like if I process things in a way like you have mm. been doing? I would I feel like I would be a completely different person. Mm. I would have totally different challenges. <laughs> so much sweating, you'd have to buy so much more deodorant. <laughs> yeah. So mm. that was that was really interesting for me. Mm. As like a bystander, but like. For you, I feel like you went through a lot. It was a lot of spirals. And now it's going to be a little bit funny, I think, for listeners to just go back. To go back and, like, re-listen to that and then come back to this. Because it's really startling how much denial you had. Yeah. Or not even denial, but just, just like, like, unaware, lack of self-awareness. I think it is denial, but it was, like, your conscious mind was, like, no. Yeah, totally. No. No, no, Don't open that door. Yeah. No. We're not opening the door. There's no door there. Yeah. You're fine. (laughs) You've been fine since you were 12. Hang on to that. That's what we need. That's what we Keep need. Keep going. Also, you wrote this chapter. You don't know why. Yeah, right? You don't know why. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was your whole process. That was the whole process. We're not talking about this. But what's so cool is that you wrote that chapter. Mm-hmm. And then now, like three months later, we yeah. are talking about it. Yeah, and totally. like how much progress have you made yeah. actually talking about mm. it? If you weren't going through these exercises, like writing chapters mm. and going with like what your gut wants you to write about, yeah. how long do you think it would have taken to another have t- another ten years? Ten years. It's taken so fucking long. Ten it would years. Have taken like ten fucking years. I cannot tell you how helpful it is to write this stuff out. Like it expedites things. Oh my god, ten. <laughs> it would have been another ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Oh my god, you go through a lot, man. I, through a lot. <laughs> I feel like I had one moment where I was like, huh. I could do that. And then I was like, so I guess my sexuality is different. Okay. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, yeah. That was it. Yeah. I went, uh-uh. <laughs> I went on a fucking roller coaster. Okay, I say that now. Yeah. Maybe in 10 years, I'll be on the podcast going, guys, I've yeah. had a sex... It's in the Grindeldorf. Yeah, it's in the Grindeldorf. Yeah, it's in the Grindeldorf. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm like, the sorting hat's like really gonna trigger something. You're like, guys, I'm actually really straight. Yeah. I'm really straight. <laughs> Pathologically. Even saying that, I'm like, that's funny. <laughs> Good effort, but no. Good effort, but no. <laughs> Pathologically straight and Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not giving up on being Gryffindor. Watch the actual crisis as I take the sorting. Yeah, and you're slithering. Yeah, 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 yeah. How I just like cry for six yeah, weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything I knew was a lie. I'd be like, yeah, see. <laughs> so that's how I like become Regulus Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I just like die in a pool of inferior, like yeah. sacrificing myself for the greater good. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the reasons you really don't want to write about Regulus, it's like too fucking real. <laughs> Too relatable. <laughs> Same buddy. <laughs> um, okay, so the oh other God. thing in in the midst of my like ribbing you mm. about all of this, which mm. is shame, I shouldn't have done so much of it, but it it was it was expected. <laughs> it was to help motivate you yeah. to get talking about yeah. it because I feel like if you if I don't, no, I ask, don't I don't talk about it otherwise. You know, but if I don't ask you to like think about the mm. things. Before we get to the discussion, mm. your answer is almost always like, I don't know. Yeah. Because you haven't had time. To process any of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead, I'm like repainting the kitchen. Being like, I don't know why this needs a new coat, but it sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Oh my God, here we go. <laughs> no one talked to me for the next six days. But, um, oh my God. yeah, the, the other thing I, I asked you about was, um, if you could maybe write down four mm. things from this chapter or from recent stuff that you mm. wanted to talk about. Yeah. So do you want to give the four things? It's on my phone. Hold on. Why would you put it on your phone I, and then record? All well, I wasn't thinking about it very clearly. <laughs> so, um, well, changing relationship dynamics mm-hmm. was, uh, like, I think the number one thing. And then dealing with like the actual concepts of like sexual desire what do you mean by that? Um, especially, like, in the face of, like, trauma. Because I feel like the way that I've dealt with, like, coming to terms with feeling comfortable with sexuality has been with a dude for so long. Mm. That now, like, changing that seems like a whole other ball game that I have to now contend with. Did not even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> then it was, like, this thing that I'm still wrestling with. It's that, like, the convoluted line of, like, sexuality and gender. Mm. Like... Which is why, like I said to you, like, I don't, like, the term lesbian doesn't feel right yeah. to me. And, like, I couldn't really pinpoint why it doesn't feel right. But I feel like gender is such, like, a, a loose amorphous blob yeah. of a concept that it's, like, well, is there a sexuality that just excludes cis men? Is that, like, a thing? <laughs> I don't know. It probably is. It probably is. Because I feel like that's really relatable. Because... And it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of, like, being around people who understand the thing that you're dealing with. Totally. And it's not like cis men can't understand things. I just... Probably everyone would agree that many of them don't make an effort to. Yeah, totally. And anyone who doesn't make an effort to or immediately alienate something or immediately dismisses something Mm. or you know, find something so unrelatable, mm. it makes you feel like you are unrelatable. Totally. You know, yeah. and that, or that they don't understand why certain things would be difficult or scary or, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So while it's not true that cis men can't mm. do that, 
they're just rare. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I can't say my hopes are very high for a lot of them. Yeah. Shame. <laughs> but there are some that are okay. Yeah. And I think nowadays we're having so many more conversations about sexuality mm-hmm. and gender and there's so many more things being normalized yeah. and Oh, the other thing we didn't talk about was um how like people you were with sort of fetishized by oh, sexuality. Yeah, yeah, um, hugely. Because that's another thing that happens occasionally is people just fetishize queer people. Totally. And that's, you just become sort of this, this thing. Yeah. This thing that they get to experience instead of a person that, you know, you could be with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's another problem that I think happens with people who aren't well um, introduced to mm-hmm. the idea of queerness totally don't have good understanding of like what it is to be queer mm-hmm. even now on dating apps and yeah. things like the unicorn hunters are so common so prevalent and yeah lots of people just fishing for someone totally. who, who yeah. will fulfill a society driven fantasy yeah. that is really like sort of ugly mm-hmm. to be part of yeah. anyway there's that there's that. The world is a nightmare. Yeah. So of those topics mm. that you listed, the four of them, which do you find the most intimidating to address? Hmm. I think it, it it continually comes back to like dealing with trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Like sexual trauma and sexuality. <laughs> like <laughs> Do you think or yeah. Obviously, this idea of sexual trauma uh, influencing your sexuality, Mm -hmm. do you think it influences, like, do you think it has a greater influence on you than other things? Or do you think it's just part of a constellation? Yeah, I think it's just part of a constellation. Yeah. Because it's interesting that you bring it up as, like, something so prevalent in, like, your discussion Mm -hmm. about, like, how you're coming to terms Mm -hmm. with your sexuality. Mm -hmm. Because... Yeah. Yeah. One would think that being gay mm. and sleeping with women, if like, you know, yeah. you also identify as a woman potentially, that it would be safer mm. or less complicated or less difficult to yeah. deal with in the context mm. of trauma. But that's totally. not always true. It's not true because my, I, I've had, like, I have experienced sexual violence from women too, yeah. which is just like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thought you were safe yeah yeah and I, I was gonna bring that up too yeah. that that it's sort of like this um so I used to work in sexual violence counseling mm-hmm. and I had a um a queer friend a lesbian friend of mine who mm-hmm. um was counseling another woman who was a lesbian or who had mm-hmm. a woman partner and who had been had um experienced violence from that partner mm-hmm. and like the discussion was like you know, really this idea of like, I did not think a queer woman would do this to me. And like, then my friend who was a counselor also came out of it being like, I cannot believe a queer woman would do this to someone. And just sort of this disbelief. Yeah, totally. Um, But we have this sort of narrative that like, if you're in the queer space, you have empathy and like, you have this understanding of what it's like Mm. and understanding of, of, um, 
being kind and compassionate and empathetic and, mm. and having this shared trauma history maybe or shared mm. history of having to come out or shared history of having to be different and Mm-mm. dealing with all these things. Yeah. But that does not mean that people cannot be violent or that people do not act in horrible ways mm. towards other people. And I think that's another oh, like awful layer to have to deal with. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting point to bring up. Like a lot of people have this really annoying narrative of like if someone, let's say if someone is raped, for example, that they become a lesbian because they want to avoid men yeah, yeah. or stuff like that. Yeah, and, like, it's like really unhealthy. Yeah. yeah, and this idea that like women could never that it falls into that yeah. sort of trope that like women could never be abusive. Yeah, but they yeah. definitely can, they and definitely they certainly can. do rape men as well. Yeah, not just other women. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Anyway, humans are just horrifying all around. Yeah, people who are going to be violent are going to be violent. Yeah, and exactly. that violence can look different. Yeah, yeah. So like a lot of women don't necessarily enact violence as sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So a lot of women enact violence as physical or emotional violence Mm -hmm. like men enact a lot of sexual violence just generally Mm -hmm. in terms of like statistics wise obviously lots of women do also Mm -hmm. enact sexual violence but like if you think about you know there's this like stereotype that like women are like nurturing and compassionate Mm -hmm. and like you know look at all the number of children who are abused by mothers like that that is extreme violence Mm -hmm. it's just not sexual so we like I don't know, don't think of it as yeah. women being violent, yeah, but it totally. is. So yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah. I think as a society, as we talk more about gender and sexuality, and as we divorce more things from the idea yeah. of inherent genders, then we are going to get closer to thinking about, well, what actually makes a person yeah. more likely to commit violence? Totally. What makes a person more likely to be unempathetic towards yeah. another human being. Totally. What kinds of human beings are they preying on? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of things are they looking for? What kind of vulnerabilities? Mm. Um, and I, those are so much more important questions, I think. Yeah. And I think would help us actually address why so many of these things are happening. I mean, yeah. we talk a lot about to- toxic masculinity, and that's mm. obviously a huge yeah. driving force, I think, in our culture in terms of, you know, how how lots of men think about vulnerable women or mm-hmm. weaker women or whatever it is this yeah. sort of like toxic idea of of women or like slutty women that deserve things <sighs> yeah but that's not the only driving force behind mm-hmm. violence you know it's yeah. not the only thing we have to think about totally anyway so if that's the most intimidating what is the topic you feel most capable of addressing None of them. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. No, really. I feel no. like I'm talking about it. Okay. So that's my technically you're addressing all of that's them. My, yeah, I mean I'm technically doing it. Even though I'm a little sweaty. I'm doing it. But it's not so bad, right? No, it's fine. Okay. Are there any other <clears throat> topics that you wanted to talk more about? That like things that you have been ruminating on that you you know, have been carrying around since you wrote that chapter and have been thinking about it. I think nobody should underestimate the value of, like, a creative outlet. That's a really good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. Mm. Because it's exactly like what you said. Yeah. Writing a chapter and suddenly you are finding yourself able to have conversations. Totally. That you mm. would never have 
head. Yeah. It was like that, like writing blood magic too. I mean, there were topics that like, I mean, my therapist was literally like trying to pry out of me with a fucking crowbar mm. and then we'd write about it and then she'd be like, that's all it fucking took, huh? <laughs> what, what topics? Um, like a lot of like sexual violence and yeah. like, you know, uh, mental health issues and stuff like that. There were okay. things that like I, I had such a hard time processing and then as soon as I was able to like write it out in is a there, coherent way. Is there a chapter in specific that you think of? From Blood Magic? Um, there's like one in the forest, and then there's one in Misunderstood Creatures from Blood Magic that were like particular. A Stranger at the Door mm-hmm. was one. And then, um, I think The Trouble with Intimacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the ducks are yelling at us. <laughs> <laughs> we left them out in the rain. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So what do you think you want to work on next? Like, like in, in the story for myself? Well, like if we're using these chapters as mm-hmm. ways to explore different things, like mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think is going to be the next thing that you're going to delve mm-hmm. into? I'm probably going to do some more exploring with, like, because I've been thinking a lot, like, back to being, like, my younger self, being a teenager, and, like, how I processed some of these ideas and, like, some of the coping mechanisms I employed to try and, like, deal mm-hmm. with, um, like, the influences around me. Yeah. And I think I want to, like, get into that a little bit more to try and make more sense of it. Anything specific you think, yeah? How like poorly placed comments can really do, then, do some damage. But then, like, what kind of things did you do to deal with it? Sort of mm. more denial. More denial. <laughs> yeah. Shame. Maybe I'll. <clears throat> I mean, like the thing that I like about writing these stories is like what, like writing about how things could go differently. Mm. You know. I think lots of people use fan fiction yeah, to totally. just do that. Yeah. To write different futures. And... Yeah. Wish fulfillment. Yeah, totally. Do you think this story is wish fulfillment for you? <laughs> not this one. Yeah, maybe, maybe blood magic. Not this one's not wish fulfillment. This one's torture. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. I, <sighs> this one's brutal. <laughs> to be honest, I think I'm going to write a bit of wish fulfillment. Yeah. But, like, not until much later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's... Grindledore really- is going to be pure wish fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we have this like golden grail yeah. in the background, like or, or yeah. holy grail or whatever, yeah. um, where we just get to put all of our like happy fun times yeah. in Grindelwald. Yeah, 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 like nonsensical. We <laughs> say that, but I have a feeling we're gonna get to it, and it's gonna be dark times. Yeah, I'm gonna write a nasty Grindelwald. It's gonna like be horrific. Nasty, yeah. cruel. Yeah. Just like all of our terrible personality traits, yeah. we're just gonna put into Grindelwald. All of my love of sadism yeah. is gonna go into Grindelwald. Yeah. <laughs> all of my love of masochism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's gonna be a fun time. Yeah, it's gonna be great. <laughs> oh, Actually, that's supposed to go in this fic also. Oh, yeah. Reference too. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm having. Lots of thoughts about that, but I feel like we'll get to it much later. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, too. In, like, part three of this week. Mm. When they're post-Azkaban. <laughs> <laughs> when all of the dark comes out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
I don't want to think about that far ahead. I'm like really excited about the next couple chapters and I just kind of want to live in it. <laughs> I like how you're excited about the next ones, but I'm really excited about like up there. Yeah. That's when I think that's I'm going to flourish. Yeah. find it really hard to write the young people. Me too. That's, I think that's why I've been like so happy to get to this point because they're starting to get a bit older and like more independent. Post 17. Mm. Because like you said um, a few chapters ago, like, I don't want to write about very much underage people exploring sexuality. Yeah. Like, it's it's uncomfortable. I mean, it's true. Mm. It's honest. I certainly was a very young person mm. who, like, engaged in all of this. But I don't particularly like writing about it. Yeah. Or, like, it, yeah. Being, being explicit about it. Yeah, like, being explicit, like, for consumption by other people. Like, yeah. it's a bit weird for me. Yeah. So, I, I'm more interested in what we can do once they're older yeah and realistically like Mm -hmm. sort of actually yeah in their 20s even great (laughs) that's what i'm looking forward to i mean it all goes downhill when they're 21 i know so they've got like a year (laughs) in a bit 18 (laughs) months to get wild well no yeah okay but there even things in Azkaban i want to explore like what does isolation do to someone yeah you know like what is I mean, if we think about the Dementors as um, major depressive disorder and, like, Mm -hmm. this kind of ever-present, crushing sadness, Mm. what does that do to someone? Yeah. What does the fact that he can become a dog do to abate that? Yeah. Like, what is so magical about... Dogs. Dogs. Precious (laughs) beans. Precious beans. Um, So I'm excited to write stuff like that. Mm. Even though I feel like you're going to spend the Azkaban years... Even more self-flagellating. Oh, I got plans. <laughs> <laughs> I got plans for Remus. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, is there anything else you want to talk about? I think that's it. Yeah, this chapter felt very much like it was important information, but I'm more excited to get into the stuff that's coming. There was one thing I wanted to ask you, and that was, did you write Remus looking at those werewolves as like, you looking at other gay kids. I didn't even think about that, but Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> oh my God. Why would you say that? So true. <laughs> oh, That's to, what I thought of when you wrote I'm it. I'm going to have to go ruminate on that for a few weeks. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, I don't like the parallel because we could get into a yeah, whole discussion yeah, yeah. About, about the werewolf gay allegory. I yeah. just think for you, particularly writing this chapter, it was a bit funny that you did <laughs> I like how you pick up all the stuff and I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> just clicking and clacking away on the keyboard. <laughs> this really cool girl werewolf in her neat jacket and she's so neat and cool and <laughs> that's nice. I'm the most transparent person. Mm, the writing really helps illuminate things. <laughs> what do you? What kind of conclusions can you make about my writing then? You're the most self-flagellating person I've ever met in my entire life. How? Wait a minute. What? All serious. Not what I was expecting. All serious doesn't self-flagellate. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. How? Listeners, <laughs> I want you to go listen to these chapters and tell me what you think about this. He doesn't self-flagellate. He survives things. He survives and then self-flagellates about it. He doesn't self-flagellate. He, like, takes responsibility 
by self-flagellating. No, but that's not self-flagellating. That's survival. Mm-hmm. Your sense of responsibility <laughs> and martyrdom is like a little pathological. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because how could he live with himself if he didn't do that? Yeah, so like he's able to like live with it by self-flagellating. Turn off the discussion. That's <laughs> you can, We're done here? You can have your turn on my next chapter, okay? I'm coming for you. <laughs> okay. I think that's good, though, right? We can stop now. Unless you want to ask more. Do you want to ask more? I'll save it for next time. Perfect. Yeah. You should write a list. I will. I'll be more prepared to answer then. With your rebuttals? With denial. Yeah, with denial. With your letter from your psychiatrist. <laughs> Have we talked about this on that podcast before? I don't think we have. Oh my god. Do you want... No, let's not talk about it. <laughs> I have a letter... No, I don't have a letter. I have a psychiatrist who told me I'm excellently psychologically healthy and I don't mm-hmm. need therapy. Mm-hmm. And I've been coasting on that. Coasting. For years. Riding that high. It's been six years. Yeah, it's been six years. <laughs> And every time I call out anything, you're like, got my letter. I'm fine. I have a like mythical letter. (laughs) There's rumored to be a sign. Yeah, right. You got like a thumbs up. Yeah, I got a like. I don't think you need any more appointments. And I was like, solid. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that until I'm 55. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of jail free card. Fuck yeah. I need the name of that psychiatrist. (laughs) I'm going to write them a letter. (laughs) (laughs) Just send them blood magic. (laughs) Honestly, I feel like it's a demonstration of good coping. Mm -hmm. Up until the dragon chapter, Uh and then it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, that went weird. (laughs) That festered oddly. (laughs) That can't be normal. (laughs) Oh my god. Okay. Okay. Until next time. Yeah, until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.